I want to remind you of a quote, and that's this. The Bible is not written to us, it is written for us, right? The book of Exodus was written probably around 3,300 years ago. It was written for people who were in a, in a moment of crisis. They needed to have faith. They were going into a promised land that was going to require huge faith out of them, and they needed to know their own history. They needed to know how far God had brought them. It was written to those people, not to you and to me, and yet it was written for us. We get to listen in on this conversation. Now, a few years ago, I took stock of my academic career, and I started in 1979, four years old. I went off to kindergarten. My parents sent me off to kindergarten, you know, and uh, I remember still I have a picture of myself. I had plaid pants, and I had a little lunchbox. I think it was a Snoopy lunchbox, you know, and that was uh, 1979. In 2006, I finished up all of my years of academic life, uh, graduating from seminary, and I look back, and I remember thinking, there's only been one year from 1979 to 2006 that I wasn't in college. Only one year, or in school of some, for, uh, of some form or other. And of all those years, I had a single grade that was the lowest of all of my grades. You'll never guess what it was. Old Testament. All right? Honestly, my first class when I went off to college to study theology was in the Old Testament, and I barely passed. It was my lowest grade of my entire life. And I graduated with a master's in Old Testament because I got so interested and realized I knew so little about it and realized that the church knows so little about what God said previous to those red letters in the Gospels. And I love what God said beforehand. And I think it's for today. I think it's for you. I think it's for me. And so this morning we're going to spend time in Exodus. But here it is. The Bible is not written to us. It is written for us. And so we're listening in on someone else's conversation. That's part of why I struggled with it, right? Because we're t- we, we learn to tune out all of those other things that are going on around us. The people who are talking to each other, what, what has that got to do with me? Why do I have to listen to this? But God meant it for you, and we have to take him on face value that that's what he says for us this morning. So we're going to talk about Exodus. This is a, I'm going to begin with a quote that's not from Exodus, but it's a quote of Exodus. This is Psalm 103, verse 8. It says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. Those four words gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, will take place. They will, they will occur over and over again across the whole Bible. And they will start first in the story we're going to read this morning. They're going to start in the Exodus, but they're not going to end until the very end of the Bible. In fact, maybe they're still alive today. And so I want you to watch for those words because when we come back to the end, you're going to see them come alive in some ways. Exodus has basically four stories that we just kind of need to get out of the way and say these are the stories of Exodus. First is the ten plagues, God setting the people of Israel free by showing his magnificent power and, and then leading them across the Red Sea on dry land, right? And the Pharaoh's army was killed and uh, destroyed in that freedom and that exodus. And then there was this, this set of rules given, wrote, written by God himself on the Ten Commandments the Ten Commandments, written on stone. That's the second story. And then the third story is the story of the golden calf. They they fail at one of those Ten Commandments. The second one says, have no graven images, and no sooner than do they get the Ten Commandments, but then they break the Ten Commandments. You can kind of see the picture and the parallel with your life, maybe, and mine as well. And then the last part is maybe the part that's the least favorite in the book of Exodus, and that's the temple. They build the first temple, the tabernacle, and uh, the last part of Exodus, 25, starting with chapter 25, all the way to the end, chapter 40, is mostly about temple building, with one exception. The golden calf story kind of interrupts it. So those are the things that happen in Exodus. But now let's talk about how it has to do with you and me. 
There are these three themes, and it's the movement of God moving these people who are enslaved from a place of slavery to freedom, but they don't actually just easily get there, right? They move from a place of slavery where they're actually in bondage to an absolute leader, a tyrannical despot, a guy who's power-hungry and thinks he's all that, and they move out from that freedom, but they don't accept the freedom that God gives them. That might sound familiar. And they have to move through a process where God is working in their lives to the, to the place where they walk in a freedom with God. Now, these definitions might be somewhat different than what you've thought of, but slavery is literally begun because someone has the wrong God. Wherever slavery has taken place, either literally or metaphorically, in the history of our world, it has always happened because someone has been worshiping the wrong person or being. And that's what was happening with the Israelites. They were worshiping. They were forced to worship these gods, and maybe this leader who made them terribly afraid. Uh, Andy Crouch is one of the consultants for Netzer. He's the editor of Christianity Today, and he was telling us recently that he was in uh, talking with the ministry leader in a third-world country, and this ministry leader was involved. I won't give the organization because I don't have his permission to quote him, but he, he was involved in uh, providing help for people in poverty in this third-world country, and he said to Andy, he said, listen, you know, wherever I find poverty, I realize that the base root, the very beginning of what poverty is all about and what, insla- what slavery is all about always has to do with someone playing God in someone else's life. Wherever you will find someone who doesn't have enough, it's because they are worshiping the wrong thing and maybe someone is wanting to be worshiped. Or maybe they're worshiping something and they're putting something else in the place of God. You know, there's an array of things in our world that take the place of God and all of them exploit us. All of them take advantage of us in some way, making us addicts making us things that worship and don't become better versions of ourselves because of that worship. And so slavery has to do with making anything God. If you're somebody who looks at your iPhone too often, let me suggest that possibly your God is smaller than the real thing, okay? You can kind of see where we're going with this. But then the wilderness is having the wrong mindset. God sets them free and he, he takes them from those 10 plagues and from Egypt and crosses the Red Sea. But out there, they're not actually free because while they don't have Pharaoh bondaging them anymore and while they don't have Pharaoh leading them, what they do have instead is this uh, mindset that says, we wish we were back there. It was safer back there. We knew what we had with Pharaoh. This God, we don't know what to do with. We don't know where to go next. We don't know where we're going to get provided for. They have all of these problems with, with their mindset in that, in that stage. And then they move to a place of freedom where they actually serve the one true God. And they move there in stages. And fa- frankly, the whole Bible is spent trying to get people to that third stage. That is what the Bible's about. You and I becoming free to walk with Christ. Tim said it in, our, in his prayer, right? Our spirits need to respond to God. God shows up and what happens? Our spirits don't. Our spirits say, leave me at home this morning. Let me watch cable, you know? That's what we think. That's how we are built. And we have to work and we have to experience grace to move us into the stage. And I believe that most Christians probably live in kind of that wilderness setting. Well, let's get started with Exodus itself and talk. The very beginning of Exodus has to do with these people who are in forced labor and then because they're so... Uh, so growing constantly. They're, they're becoming more. Their population is expanding rapidly. Remember, God promised Abraham, I'm going to make you a mighty nation. And in the Exodus story, the first chapter, you find out he's actually doing that. When they escape Egypt, estimates are that they probably had about a million and a half people. And when they get to Egypt, they had about 70. So you can see God's actually keeping his promise, right? 
But these people are, they're, they're growing, they're prolific. And so the Pharaoh has this idea. He forces them to commit infanticide. Their babies are being killed. They're thrown into the Nile River. That's how Moses comes to be the Pharaoh's daughter's child because he's, abs- he's, he's put into the Nile and he gets rescued accidentally from this terrible watery death that so many Jew- Jewish babies are going through. And then last, they're, in, they're involved in a forced culture. This Pharaoh is taking their lives and he's saying, I'm going to tell you what to do with all of your time and I'm going to tell you what to do with your future and I'm going to tell you what to do with your culture, your art, your religion, all of your language. I'm going to tell you what to do with all those things because you are my slaves. That's where God finds these people after 400 years. Abraham is 400 years in their rearview mirror and now we are moving forward into this reality and they're getting shrunken in their hallowed version of of their former selves because they're enslaved. They have been in bondage for all of these years. Now here's what God does in response. This is what's most important. Honestly, slavery is normal. Okay, there are various versions, some of them really horrific in our world today of slavery, and there have been versions of slavery all the time. But there are still versions in our lives as well. Okay, that's normal. What's abnormal, what's absolutely supernatural and remarkable is how God responds. The first thing God does is he hears their groaning. He hears their cry. The second thing he does is he absolutely responds with himself. He reveals himself to them. And the third thing he does is he reveals his power. He reveals himself before his power, and that's important to note as well. Let me show you what I mean. In Exodus 2, we read these words. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. You ever wonder, when you look back over your life, why God sticks with you? Why God is still here today after you have blown it with him? You have, right? Don't tell me. I don't want to hear you. Don't don't even nod your head. Don't tell me that you have. I know you have, because I have, and every person has, right? So why does God stick with us? We choose slavery over freedom all of the time. Why does God stay? And the answer is found in this word covenant. It says God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant. A few weeks ago we celebrated communion and we passed out the the grape juice and we said that we remember what Jesus did for us on the cross and we remember the words he spoke. And what did he say on that night? This is the new covenant in my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. Ponder backwards about the fact that you are part of a covenant relationship with the almighty God of the universe. Why does God stick with us? Because we're involved in a relationship. And that relationship is something he hangs on to far longer than we do. Sometimes I think we give up on it very early compared to him. He continues to to monitor and bless us and walk with us through those situations where we choose slavery over and over again. So God reveals himself, and that is his primary response to all this slavery. Instead of just coming in and setting them free, what he says is, I want to be known. And he does that in a conversation with a man named Moses, who's one time an Israelite and then becomes an Egyptian and then gets kicked out of Egypt, and he's actually in exile, an ex-con. He's out in the desert, and he's watching sheep, and God shows up to him in a burning bush. And he communicates with him, and he talks with him, and he says, listen, you are my chosen servant to set my people free. And Moses says, Are you kidding me? Honestly, that's my translation. But are you kidding me? How could you use me to go up against the most powerful nation on earth and tell them that their slaves need to be set free just because God said so? One of the questions he asks is this. Moses says to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Well, this is a good question. What is God's name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. 
This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. You know, in your Bible, there are these words that, that have different meanings than what they look. One of them is the word Lord. And if you ever see in the New International Version or most versions of the Bible, you will see this word Lord, and it will be in all caps, right? L-O-R-D, all of them capitalized. What that means is that this name of God that he gives right here is being translated. And it's being wrongly translated in your Bible because be, people are afraid to say it. So let me tell you what this means. And it's going to require that we get a little deeper this morning, okay? I never talk in Hebrew to you because most people, when they hear Hebrew, say, I am done. I'm leaving. That's it. If this pastor is going to talk that way, I have no interest. We don't need to hear the ancient languages. I get enough of that in my, in my you know, fortune cookies at the end of a Chinese meal in a restaurant. You know, you learn Chinese. I don't need to learn Hebrew, too. But this morning, we've got to learn just a little bit, okay? When he says these words, I am who I am, what God says literally is this. And you need to speak these words. Your mouth has to move and the words have to come out, okay? It's, in literal Hebrew, Hebrew, it says this, Haya. Can you do it? Haya. Barb, you're, you're brave. Thank you. Haya. You can say it. Last night, I was sitting outside waiting to come in, and Tony Kampala was speaking, and there were several women with babies over there. And they were, and these little babies, they, they, they don't breathe like you and me. You can hear them breathe, you know? If you sit next to an adult, they kind of quiet down and they, they sound normal. Babies, they, they have no qualms about letting you know how they feel. And one of the things they feel is this kind of, especially when they're asleep, they kind of breathe heavy. And their, their mouth is moving and the air is coming in and out. This word in Hebrew actually comes from that word that means to be, and it has to do with just plain breathing. And it sounds like breathing, doesn't it? Hayah. God says, I am who I am. That's my answer. Who are you, God? Hayah. I am who I am. And then he says, whenever you get together, you will call me by another name. And this is the name that's translated Lord in your Bibles. That name is Yivah. It sounds just like Hayah, but a little different. You know, when we have English words, we have these different forms of words. You go to the grocery store, but if you already went to the grocery store, we call it went, right? And the word changes slightly. This is the same word changing. And when he tells us to call him this, what he means is this. Yavah means he is. So let, let me say, Yavah, you say it, Yavah. And you say, Hayah, Hayah, and Yavah. And I know you're, you're, ready, you're already done with your Hebrew lesson, but let me tell you how valuable those two words are, okay? Because Yavah means he is. He is. That's what Yahweh means or Jehovah. Those are all the divine names, and they're translated Lord in your Bible. But here God reveals something to Moses that I think we miss very often. He says, I am Chayah. I am. Now, the difference between I am and he is is profound. If he is, then what can happen is Moses can go off to Egypt and maybe he'll have some power, maybe he'll have an army, maybe he'll have all these different things. And God who is there, who has spoken, who is somewhere, can, can communicate through Moses. But if God is I am, then he is going to be with Moses. And the answer when he speaks these words to the Israelites is not going to be just, well, I promise you God is. What he's actually saying is, no, God is here right now. I am. Hayah. He's right here. 
You know, I became a Christian at two different points in my life. Now, you argue with me about this, right? And so do my mom and I. When I was three years old, she says she led me to Christ. That is her words for it. And she sends me a card every year, or used to, that says, thank you for becoming a Christian on this, your spiritual birthday. And it's September 25th. And she says that happened in 1982. Or I'm sorry, 1978. And I say, oh my goodness, what is she talking about? Because, you know, when somebody offered me this relationship with God that said, okay, you get to avoid all of this torment away from God on this end and you get to walk on streets of gold and live in mansions, believe me, I said yes, you know? And I said yes once with my mom when I was about three. And then I said yes in Sunday school the next week and yes in VBS the week after that and yes in Awana and yes at camp. And I said yes over and over again because if somebody says knowing God looks like this and if you know God, then you escape all that. Believe me, I want it, right? He is God. That's what all those preachers were telling me. And you need God in your life. And I thought, yes, I do. Okay, I'll come forward. I'll kneel. I'll pray a prayer. That was the sort of church I went into. You could kind of smell the sawdust. You know what I mean? And, and as, as we were talking through my life, I heard the gospel over and over again. And it was always the gospel. He is. That's what those preachers would tell me. He is Yahweh. He is. He is. He is. Jesus is. He died on the cross. He did all that stuff 2,000 years ago. You can talk with them all that different stuff. But when I was 17 years of age, I was in a, a group gathering, and I was sitting there with all of these different people, and this guy named Dan got up and spoke and said, you got to make God Lord of your life. And he said these words, and they were so unprofound. They weren't even well delivered. There was nothing to this message at all. Uh, you know, seminarians study this field of learning, homiletics. It's the, it's the, it's the art of giving a sermon. And it, this was not a homiletically sound message. And yet, in the moment, I heard something else. I heard hayah. I heard behind these words, I am. And I want to be, I am, with you. Something changed inside my heart in that moment. And I realized that all of my life in church had been lived thinking, he is, he is, yes, he is, okay, you know, he is there, but what difference does that make for me? And when he became I am, when he became Hayah, it made all the difference in my life. All of a sudden I realized that this God is either present or he's just being kind of talked about, right? We need God in our lives. And God's answer for slavery is always, not I'm going to set you free, not I'm going to break your addiction, not I'm going to do this, this, and this. Instead, he says, I am. The answer for your slavery is, listen, I am going to show up and be your God. That's the answer. It's so simple. And yet we want self-help groups and we want all of these different things. We want all of that stuff. But the answer is always, will God show up and will he say, I am? And he wants to do it over and over again. The problem with us is we don't like hearing that. We'd rather hear some set of rules, some set of guidelines, some self-help clinic about how to get ourselves out from our situations, unenslaved from our past and into our future without this being. That's who God is. He is the I am. And he says, please don't try to escape Egypt without me. Please don't try to escape anything without me because what I really want is to be your God and I want you to be my child. And when I heard that at 17 years of age, I said, Wow, that's a whole lot different than all of those sermons. All of the meaning of the truth that I'd heard in my early years came back to me with life in it all of a sudden. It was like those were empty cups. They were just kind of sitting there empty on a shelf and then God filled them all with water and all of that truth had life to it and it was actually inhabited by a real spirit. I am, says the risen Savior. I am, says the living God. He wants to be the I am for us. But, you know, the Israelites, they were like you and me. They didn't know how to deal with somebody who says, I am, and just believe it. And so what 
God does is he actually walks them through these plagues. And he says, listen, I'm going to set you free and you're going to watch my power. Now, the Egyptians were, in their culture, fond of worshiping all of the different things around them, starting with the Nile River. The longest river in the world flows south to north in the middle of Egypt, and it's the source of life. There's very little water there except for the Nile River, which is so absolutely huge that it supports a whole civilization around it, okay? And they worship this Nile. The first thing God does is he turns it into blood. And the next thing he does is the frogs crawl out of it and, and they're crawling all over everything in their beds and their pots and their pans. They're cooking spaghetti and they look in the pot and they're on top of the noodles is a, is a frog. You know what I'm saying? I have three little children and we have frogs in our house more often than shall be wishes. And we made a deal recently, and that's that the frogs would leave, and now we have a gecko. And I'm not sure Shelby's feeling better about that. But, you know, when you get frogs by the thousands, they really are a plague. Two or three of them aren't so bad. But they will go from frogs to lice to flies to livestock that is diseased. After that, they move into boils, and then there's hail that wrecks their crops and locusts that eats the rest of their crops. And then darkness spreads over the land, and it, it keeps everybody from moving and all the commerce. And then there's this final plague. God says, listen, if you're going to kill my firstborn children, all of these Israelites, let me tell you that I'm going to kill your firstborn children. And he actually warns them over and over again, listen, this does not have to happen. But if you think your gods are big enough to stand up against the I am, let me just show up a little bit with a little bit of power. And you will start to question your religion. And the Egyptians do. And the Israelites do. And what's happening in the middle of all that is God is trying to get a hold of his people. He's trying to get their imaginations, which have been enslaved and been afraid and been absolutely stuck in this mindset of being under this tyrannical despot. He's trying to get them from out from under that thumb and into a place where they can realize how much he loves them, how powerful he is, how present he is, how much he wants to work in their lives today. And he says, you've got all the wrong gods. Let me replace them with the one true God. Let me show you myself. The answer for slavery is always God showing us himself, right? And that's what he does. Ten plagues deep, over and over again, he shows them himself. It's interesting, about 50 years ago, there was this scientific study done. Somebody who kind of wanted to take the Bible seriously, but was looking for a scientific explanation. And they could explain most of these plagues away. They could say, you know, in Ethiopia, on the southern end of the Nile River, if you dropped enough rain, then there are these red rocks. And the rain hits the rocks, and then it flows into the Nile River. And then the whole thing turns red. And it actually kills all the fish, and the frogs don't like it. So the frogs would have crawled out of the river. And then it would have flooded because of all that rain. And in those pools that would have left behind in the flood, the lice and the flies would have, you know, kind of hatched out of all of that stuff they hatch out of. And then all of the dead frogs would have birthed disease. So you get all of these livestock dying and you get all of these boils. You can see where this is headed, right? And they walked through this whole scenario of events. Didn't explain everything, but it did explain some things. You know what I love is the thought that maybe God didn't act 10 different times. Maybe he acted only once. And he said, yeah, I'm just going to let a little water fall in Ethiopia. And then all the way downstream up in the Nile River Delta where the Egyptians live, they're going to reap the whirlwind. They're going to watch this happen. And instead of a conversation, what this looks like is God absolutely moving and saying, I can set them free through a simple act of just letting a little rain fall. 
That's how powerful this God is, possibly. That's one scenario. We have no idea how he did this. What we do know is he did it. And he said, I'm going to take these people from slavery and I'm going to make them free and they're going to watch me do it and they're going to believe that I am their God because of what happens. And then God leads them. He says, okay, listen, after the firstborn all die, you go out into the desert. And they go. And he leads them to the least positive strategic location, maybe in all of the world that you could go if you were afraid of the people chasing you. Okay, he leads them up against the Red Sea and there are mountains on two sides of them and there's the sea in front of them and it looks like what should be a resort community and maybe today it actually is. But all of a sudden they see the the clouds in the distance of Pharaoh's army coming up behind them, right? There are all these chariots and horses and they're coming to attack them. And what looked like a celebratory moment when they were going to find their freedom turns into a moment where they think they're going to be massacred. And they start complaining to God. Oh, Lord, God, you brought us out here to kill us. Why didn't you just leave us enslaved? Because now we're going to be dead and that's even worse. And they have this whole conversation with God. And then God says, what's the answer? I am Hayah. Just watch. Just watch. Watch. And in between Pharaoh's army and the Israelites, there's this pillar of cloud. The living God shows up. At night, it's a fire cloud. In the daytime, it's a cloud. And it's just a regular pillar. And it goes up. And this whole gigantic army, probably the biggest army in the world at that point, cannot get past it. And God, he all but says, listen, why don't you just set up some lawn chairs and have a picnic? Because Pharaoh can't do a thing with, with me here. Look at me. Your enslavement is so small and your God is so big. Watch me. I'm just going to part this river and you're going to walk right through it. We're not sure which body of water that is, by the way, but they walk across it and they're absolutely thunderstruck by the fact that they're on dry land. And the minute Pharaoh's troops get on it, God removes his presence and Pharaoh says, well, we're going to chase them right through that trough in the waves. And they go down there and what was dry ground turns into muddy ground. The chariots get stuck. The horses go in a whole mess. And then you know the story. The waves come over top of them. And Pharaoh's army, their oppressors are no more. And God says, you will be free because I set you free. I am who I am. I am not the one who is over there. I am not he is. I am that I am now right here. Are you going to be my children? He asks this question again and again in different ways. And each time, quite frankly, the Israelites say, no, I don't think so. God gives them freedom after freedom. And they use that freedom in the most efficient ways to make him angry. I think this, I mean, I love the Bible. This is why I love the Old Testament, because I look inside my life and I say, you know, Josh Blightwork is kind of a mess. And when I read about people in the Old Testament, you know what I see? They're people who are kind of a mess. They're people who have been enslaved and they would rather be enslaved than go free. And here in the wilderness, they will use their freedom to complain. They say, God, you haven't given us good enough water. Oh God, we're running out of food. And then God drops all of this frosted flakes from the from the sky and it's on the ground around them and they go what in the world is this and they name it manna because that in hebrew literally means what is it and they're surrounded by food they can't get enough of it i mean there's more food on the ground than they can possibly collect there's probably a million and a half people you think it was great when jesus turned these few loaves and fishes into enough food for five thousand people think of god feeding a million and a half people as they're complaining with this miraculous food And then they complain about that and they say, we don't have any meat. And quail come every day miraculously to sustain them. What do they do with the first part of their freedom? They complain. Eventually they get to the point where they don't have enough fresh fruits. I love how the Bible puts this. They say, you know, in Egypt we had leeks and onions. 
I, I, I don't know if I was out away from civilization, if the first thing I would miss would be onions, and I don't even know what a leek is, to be honest with you. But those onions and leeks, he says, they, they say, we don't know if we want to worship a God who can only provide manna for us and only quail when God should provide onions. You start to feel how ludicrous this is, right? These are actual words in the Bible. I don't have time to read for all of them for you, but they come up with an idea. Then they say, listen, God, just let us return to Egypt. We'd rather be slaves than just live on manna and quail. We want onions, and we're going back to slavery because that's what we need. This is absolute insanity. Then they go one final step. God gives them the Ten Commandments, and they break it right off the bat. He says, don't have any graven images, and they create a golden calf, and they say, the I am is kind of hard to touch. He's hard to see. He's hard to experience. We're not sure what to do with a God who's so tough to pin down. So Aaron, the chief priest, Moses' brother, can you create for us a graven image, something we can worship as a part of this cult that we're going to start, and we're going to start dancing and singing to this God because we're not sure how to control the one true God. In fact, they can't. That's the problem, right? They can't control him. So they use their freedom first to complain, and second, they use their freedom to try to return to Egypt, and third, they use their freedom to replace God altogether. This is not a promising beginning. You can see their minds are torn. They're enslaved in their heads, even if they're free in their bodies. They could go anywhere and do anything, but what they choose to do is absolutely offend the one person that's doing the most to help them. This is the story of our lives. This is the story of the human race. God provides manna. God reveals the Ten Commandments and God forgives. A couple words on this. You know, the Ten Commandments are the first words ever written in the history of the Bible. Genesis is written after the ten words are written, and that's because Moses writes the, the, the first five books of the Bible. He writes them as they're approaching the promised land, and that's much later. The first words ever written in the Bible are God writing on stones, and they are ten words. Don't have any other gods. Don't have any graven images. Don't talk about me like I'm not there. Don't swear. Don't, don't forget me and, and make sure there's a day every day, every, every week to remember me. Honor your leaders. Don't murder each other. I gave you my life. I offered you so much. I've rescued you from Egypt. By all means, don't go starting to kill each other. I'm a covenant-keeping God, so you should keep covenant with your spouse because that's who I am. I remembered you because I made a commitment to Abraham. You should remember her because you made a commitment to her all those years back at the, at the altar. And all of these commands, they come into, come into focus when you see that God is giving them in the context of reinculturating them. They've lost their culture. They've lost their connection with God. They've lost all of what they came to be because they were slaves. And God is offering it all back and saying, this is how to live. These are the words that will set you free. They're not laws that make you rule, live by them. They're laws that set you free to be blessed in this lifetime. You know, early on, and I... I uh, I misspoke this in the first service, but early on in our, our country's history, the leaders of our country got together and they said, how do we create a judicial system and an executive system and a legislative system of government? How do we create a republic and a democracy all in one? How do we do this? And they say, you know, we've got to go back to two places. The first republic, Rome, and the second, we've got to go back to Moses. Benjamin Franklin is asked at one point, who should we put on the quarter? And, and everybody kind of says, well, maybe we should put... Uh, George Washington, he says, no, I think we should put Moses. And then they all say, well, I'm not sure what Moses looked like. And so they end up putting George Washington's face in the quarter because who does know what Moses looked like? He's 3,000 years back but at that point. 
But they actually thought about the fact that Moses was so formative. What he came across with the Ten Commandments was so important to living a civilized life that they wanted to put him on one of our currency, one of our, 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 our quarters, our, our coins. What's more is if you went to the Supreme Court today at the very apex of the roof line, there's actually a picture of Moses. Why? Because the source of where truth comes from has to do with the scriptures and God revealing. And the first thing he starts to reveal are these rules that all mankind should live by. The Ten Commandments were there to set these people free. No sooner did they get them, but they broke them. It's kind of the story of all of us, right? So God provides manna. He reveals the Ten Commandments. And even as they're in the midst of worshiping this golden calf, in a kind of amazing story where God and Moses get into an argument, God absolutely forgives them of the gigantic sin of breaking the Ten Commandments just after they're given. Let me show you what I mean. Moving beyond wilderness, they move into freedom. And if you could think that that the beginning part of the story is slavery, and slavery has to do with worshiping false gods and having lesser gods rule your life, and that wilderness is being caught between the one true God and all of these lesser gods in our existence, well, then freedom is absolutely uniting and deciding to serve the only God who can actually hold our attention and be who we should be looking at at any given moment. This is the God who we must worship, and he doesn't exploit us. Rather, he makes us better versions of ourselves. The Bible uses the word transformation about this God over and over and over and over again. Every other God makes you less than you are, and this God makes you more. What an amazing gift, right? And yet, in the middle of all that, there's a conversation that needs to take place. You, you must come to the place where the I am is the I am for you, and he is for me. And so we move from the place where we don't know who God is and we're worshiping all these other gods, and then we hear that he is the Yahweh, the, the, the Yavah, the God who is. He is somewhere, sure, but where is he now? And we move into freedom when we come to this place of I am, God revealing to us. He alone can say, I am, right? I can't tell you God is and have it be I am. I just tell you he is. This is somebody I know. That's not somebody necessarily you know. So the question in the third stage, true freedom comes when God becomes the I am for you. Nobody can offer you that. That's something he alone offers. I don't even know how to, you you can't put it in a bottle. Sometimes people say it comes from a prayer. I love that prayer, but honestly, it's not the prayer, right? It's the relationship between a human being and their God. In Exodus 33, there's a beautiful picture of this. It's in the middle of this argument where God has been betrayed and the people of Israel have gone after and worshipped this golden calf. And in the middle of the argument, God is telling Moses, I'm not going to go with you anymore. In fact, at first he says he's going to kill them. And then he says, I'm not going to go with you. And Moses says, listen, don't kill us. You'll be like Pharaoh. I kind of have a thought that God is trying to look like Pharaoh and say, you know, listen, I am not that God. Let me argue with you a little bit and you'll get the picture that I am much better than that God. In this argument, you get the picture that this is a God who sees past massive failure and forgives past it, okay? And in that moment, Moses says, listen, if you're not going to go with us and if you're not going to be the I am for this people, then I refuse to go too. I'm done. We're, We're over. Because this nation isn't worth anything if God is not in its midst. And any human being is not worth life. It's not all of what it's supposed to be without this God in our midst. And so these words are found in Exodus 33 at the height of the argument. It says this, Now Moses used to take a tent, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, the first the first uh, temple, and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. And anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. 
And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrance to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. And as Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped each at the entrance of their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. This is why this is such an amazing story. Because at the end of what God offers us, he offers us himself. What's Moses doing and what's anybody doing who wants to inquire of God? They're coming to this place of worship and they're meeting with God in this location and God deigns to meet with them. After all of this failure, he says, I will forgive you. I want to have a conversation with you. He speaks to Moses as a man speaks to his friend. I pick up my phone and I call my friends and God and Moses have a conversation like that. That is the picture of what freedom is all about. You know, the people of Egypt probably would have settled just for a few leeks and onions in the absence of Pharaoh. They wanted to get rid of all of this slavery stuff in their life, but they didn't know what would truly make them free. They wandered in the wilderness and they said, you know what, somebody should save us. I mean, after all, we are your people. And they constantly thought of themselves as being entitled and God somehow needing to rescue them. But what they never understood is God had phenomenal power to do all the rescuing. What they didn't understand is God wanted to offer them himself. The answer for their slavery, the slavery of their mind, the small slaveries that inhabit all of our imaginations and live in all of our existences, all of those things have to do with one central truth, and that is God is not at the center of our lives. We struggle every day with this truth, right? We struggle every day to make God who he's supposed to be. Jesus said it this way, if you doubt me because I'm in the Old Testament, I know I'm in this old stuff, but here's Jesus talking. He replied, truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. If the son sets you free, you will be absolutely free. Jesus, still doing the work of God, doing what God has always done. What's, it's the gospel from the beginning to the end. It starts in Genesis. It doesn't end till Revelation. And what's more is it's still going on in your life today, right? God setting people free. About maybe 17 years ago, I was invited to go on a mission trip. And that mission trip was supposed to take place in, in Holland, the Netherlands. And I was supposed to lead this group of people from our college. And uh, I went there over Christmas break and went there for, for about three weeks, and maybe a month. And we flew into Schiphol Airport on the edge of Amsterdam. And what they had failed to tell me is the youth hostel where we were staying, what sort of neighborhood it was in the midst of. Now, are you familiar with Amsterdam and what sort of community Amsterdam is? There are many good things about Amsterdam. There's a lot to see, a lot of beautiful things to see. But we stayed in a district known as the Red Light District. You might know what that means. And for a 20-year-old guy who had never seen a prostitute in his life, I walked down these streets, and in Amsterdam, it's illegal to be a prostitute out in the open, but anywhere you want to go, as far as in, in certain zone neighborhoods, you can be behind glass windows. And there are these women on both sides of the streets, and we're walking down these streets, and these windows are open, the curtains are opening, and these lights are coming on, and these people are there. I mean, it's truly frightening, you know? And I was just like, I'm going to look at the paved stones. You know what I'm saying? I'm just going to look at what's ahead of me. We're going to get through this. We're going to get to the youth hostel. For three days, we stayed there, and we went to coffee shops and went to different shops and all this. But I was just staying away from those things. That's where people go to do bad things. I was under that impression, and it's true. That is the impression to have. 
But after three days, the missionary who led our organization came to us, and we were kind of on our own for the first three days. I forget why the flights worked out that way or something. And he came to us, and he was sitting at dinner, and I said, I, I want to know, why did you have us camp out in the middle of, of all places, the red light district? And he said, well, I wanted to, you to see the red light district. I said, you wanted to take a bunch of people in their early 20s or late teens and plant them in the middle of, you know, a brothel. Really? That's what you wanted? And they said, yeah. It's going to show you things about yourself. It's going to show you things about God. What have you seen? And I said, well, I haven't seen anything. I've had my eyes closed this whole time. He said, you haven't, how did you walk around? I said, well, we just kind of made an agreement. We're not going to look at these women. We're just going to stay away from them. All of us guys had this kind of agreement. And we're walking down the street and we're just avoiding, you know, either, either side. And he says, you are an idiot. Let me take you up to one of these windows. I said, I'm not going up to one of those windows. I mean, my mom told me when I was a little kid, you don't go up to that sort of stuff. You stay away. And he says, no, please go with me. So he took me by the arm and we walked up to this window. And I'll never forget it as long as I live. One of the saddest moments, maybe the saddest moment in my life. You know, the Apostle Paul says that the wages of sin is death. And what he maybe doesn't necessarily mean is just that we physically die. What he means is that we die inside. Whatever enslaves us makes us shrunken versions of ourselves. And if that sin keeps attacking us and keeps winning over and over, we become less, less, less than what we were ever intended to be. And as I walked up to that window and the curtains peeled back, I looked at this woman and I looked in her eyes and what I saw, she was very much alive. I'm sure she had a pulse, but her eyes were empty. They were dead. Whatever there, wherever that soul was, it wasn't in the eyes anymore. I couldn't see it. I walked away from that moment. I walked away from the missionary. I went back to the youth hostel. It was a Christian youth hostel. I climbed inside my sleeping bag and I cried myself to sleep like I was a small boy. I was terrified of what I saw. I didn't know that a human being could look like that. When you look in the eyes of somebody like that, you go, it's not an attractive sight. What it is an absolutely torturous sight. You go, this is how far sin can go. When it enslaves our souls, it can eat away at us till that woman just sits there. I learned later that the the hostel where we were staying, they had a ministry to those women and they administered to hundreds of them. Today we call them trafficked people. They were moved from the South Pacific and different countries around the world. They were hooked on drugs and enslaved by people who had this whole ring of trafficking them from one part of the world to to another. But this, this, in this free country, Amsterdam, this youth hostel had a ministry to those, to those prostitutes. And they, they would get them a certain distance out of the slavery. They would get them out of the lifestyle. And they said every time but a few, They have gone back. It is so addictive. What could be addictive about that? I thought to myself, and they said, you just don't know. You've never experienced it. The drugs, the relationships, all of this different stuff, it holds these women in a place where they cannot get free. You know, there's an answer for that. It's the hayah. It's God showing up and saying, I want to keep you from sin. I want to bless you with such an alternative that you won't want to sin. I want to take you and make you mine. These women were addicted to being everyone else's. You know, all of us are, quite frankly. You might look at yourself and say, you know, I'm not like that. And you're not, probably. But there are things that have addicted you in your life. I remember one guy leaving our service after a few years uh, of being here. He said to me, he said, you know, it's not just all of these addictions that are addictive. He said, I realize that beyond alcoholism and drug addiction and all of this different stuff that we call as, as being addictions, there's this thing that's just called sin. And sin is always addictive and it always kills and it always wounds and it always crushes our souls. 
We turn out to be the opposite of children of God, and we turn into slaves to whatever world we're a part of. And there's all sorts of versions of it, right? You can be slaves to your spouse. You can be slaves to your children. What they turn out to be can dominate your life to the point where you think they're my defining characteristic. Who those kids are when they're 25 or 35 or 45 is going to define me as a human being. They have you enslaved. The only thing that's allowed to tell you who you are is God and God alone. I am, says God. It's not he is, I am God and I want to be God now. And it's not enough for you to just break free from the chains of slavery that you think you're in bondage to. Let me tell you, you need to walk as free enough that you can communicate with God the way God communicates to a friend. He wants to be your dad. He wants to be the person who has this relationship with you. Paul, writing about this, writes this word. He says this in Galatians 4, 6 through 7, Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. You know where the the temple of today is, right? That temple created in 3300 BC, it lasted a few hundred years and it was gone. By 1000 BC, the temple that Solomon built was built on this beautiful site in Jerusalem. It lasted for a few hundred years and then it was destroyed. About 480 BC, there's a whole other temple that's built and it gets destroyed. And Herod Herod the Great builds this magnificent temple over 300 feet tall in the time of Jesus and it doesn't even last 50 years before it's destroyed. Where's the temple where God actually lives today? If freedom means living in a temple and walking and talking with God, then this is it. It's the human heart. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but you are God's child. We just don't believe it. That's our major issue in life. We don't believe that we are God's children. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. You know, I I began this message by reading this word. I'm going to close with just this set of thoughts. But uh, we read this word and it was from Psalm 103 and it was a quotation from that story where Moses and God are going back and forth in Exodus 32 through 34 around the golden calf. And God says this, I am gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. You find that in Hosea, Joel, the Psalms, most of the minor prophets, Isaiah, those words occur over and over again. Yahweh is these things. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. He's compassionate and he's gracious. I could tell you what all those words mean. They're the most repeated words in the Bible. They're absolutely beautiful. They're absolutely awesome. They tell us about who God is. But when the first century authors are trying to figure out how to communicate to us how great Jesus' love is for us and how much he has offered to us, they they try to figure out a word and they realize they shouldn't probably invent a word. They decide they should quote Moses. Let me give you an example. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Famous passage, right? For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and it is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast or, or... think there's some big shot, right? We're all saved by, what's the word? Grace. And God said to Moses, I am gracious and compassionate. That word at its core means, I like you. Why did God show up into, in, in Egypt to set them free from their slavery? Because he liked them. Why did he part the Red Sea? Because he liked them. Why did he give them the Ten Commandments? Because he liked them enough to form a new culture. Why did he set them free from their addictions? Because he liked them. Why does he continue to work today? Because he likes us. You need God to be more than the he is. You need God to be the I am. Jesus died on the cross and 
I get uh, torn up thinking about this, but the darkness comes down, you know, and the earth shakes and there's all of this stuff that happens and dead people rise from the dead in Jerusalem. This is at the cross, you know, and you've read that story over and over again. We'll read it in a few weeks on Good Friday. And it's an important story to read. There's one thing that we don't necessarily often talk about that happens in that moment. When Jesus dies, what happens at the temple? That he is escapes. There's this curtain that separates the Holy of Holies from all of the rest of the world. And that curtain rips down the center. It was probably up to four inches thick and it was hugely tall. The fact that this happened was absolutely magnificent. And yet what was the symbolic moment? What was the point of the whole thing? That God who was there, the God who is, the God that only the priest could talk to, that God escaped and he wants to be there for you. He is the answer for the slavery that we all walk in. What is wrong with us? What is wrong with us? We don't like the yeah. We want him to be the he is and we want to live in small versions of our huge slaveries. We want to just be set free enough to function and live middle class lives. And what God says is that's not enough. It's not enough for you to see my power in some way. It's not enough for you to see me work in this situation or that. It's not enough for, me to see, for you to see me work in your kids' lives or your cousin's life or your friends or your coworkers. I need to be walking intimately with you. I have escaped from where I was imprisoned so I could set you free from all that has imprisoned you. Are you ready for a God that is willing to be the Hayah in your life? It's not enough that he is the he is. That's the old God. This is the God who is out there. And when Jesus died, it changed everything, right? No longer are we slave. We, we have a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and he is abounding in love. And the question is, will we walk and talk with him? The Bible begins with the first man and woman walking in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day with this God. And it ends with us walking again with this God. And the question in the middle is, are we going to walk in the wilderness constantly having mixed minds as he's setting us free? Or are we going to embrace what he offers us and say, yes, thank you, God. You are who you say you are. We need the I am today. Join me in prayer.